please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. This morning we'll be reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. But as for you, continue what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with sacred scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the inspired word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that it is our only sufficient, certain rule for all of what we are to believe and what we or how we are to obey. So, Father, we are we're thankful for these words. Father, as we uh, think of our brothers and sisters meeting in churches around the city this morning, Father, we desire that your word, the gospel, would go forth with power. Father, we, we think of Master's Bible Church and Pastor Joey DeRunce. Father, we lift up our brother as he is serving the, the people there. And Father, we ask that, uh, that you would bless the ministry. And Father, we pray that this morning that your word would go forth from the pulpit and that our brothers and sisters there would have hearts of good soil so that your word would be planted and spring to life. Father, we pray the same for, for us this morning. Father, as we hear your word and we consider this great Reformation truth, Father, we want our, our hearts to burn with passion for you. Father, we want to embrace this doctrine with our whole heart. We want it to be a rock to stand upon. So, Father, we pray that you would grant that to us this morning. Father, keep me from error. Father, I pray that you would give me boldness to speak your words this morning. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. October 31st, 1517, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. These 95 theses or propositions challenged abuses within the church involving the sale of indulgences. Now, indulgences were certificates believed to reduce a person's time in purgatory. It could uh, reduce your time in purgatory for either the buyer of these certificates or the loved ones of the buyer. Of course, nothing of the sort can be found in the Holy Scripture. But by most accounts, the posting of those theses on the castle church door was the spark that ignited the Protestant Reformation. And that was 504 years ago today. 
And so while, while the rest of America celebrates this All Hallows' Eve by blowing an estimated $10.1 billion on costumes and candy, we're going to celebrate Reformation Day. At least this morning we will. We're going to take a one Sunday break from our series on the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to look at a foundational teaching of the Reformation, the authority and sufficiency of Holy Scripture. This, com- this uh, teaching is more commonly known by its Latin name, Sola Scriptura, which means Scripture alone. Fast forward four years from the posting of the 95 Theses to another key moment in the life of Martin Luther. It is the Diet of Worms. The year was 1521, which makes this year the 500th anniversary of this event. The Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, summoned Luther to appear before the assembly in the town of Worms. He was to answer for his writings and his teachings, which according to the church contained heresy. But would Luther comply with the emperor's summons? He wrote to a friend, and this is classic Martin Luther. I include it because it gives us some insight into how this man thought. I will reply to the emperor that if I'm being invited simply to recant, I will not come. If to recant is all that's wanted, I can do that perfectly well right here. But if he's inviting me to my death... Then I'll come, and I hope that none but the papists will stain their hands in my blood. The Lord's will be done. Luther arrived in Worms on the 16th of April, and he was examined by by an archbishop by the name of Eck. Day two of the questioning began at 6 p.m. The assembly refused to let Luther debate from the scriptures. So with a pile of Luther's books spread out before him, Archbishop Eck cut to the chase. I ask you, Martin, do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? Luther replied, since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can not do otherwise. God help me. And thus, this simple monk, the son of a miner, defied emperor and pope, and he opened a chasm that day between Rome and those who wished to reform her. And that chasm remains to this day 500 years after the event. The issue at stake here, what's called the formal cause of the Protestant Reformation, was the authority and the sufficiency of Holy Scripture. Did the Pope, the College of Bishops, and a thousand years of church tradition have equal authority as the written word of God? Rome said yes, 
The reformers said no as they clung to the authority and sufficiency of Scripture alone. This doctrine was summarized beautifully 170 years after these events in the 1689 Confession. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. We use similar language here at Living Water Church in our member affirmation of faith. That's the statement of faith to which all members subscribe. It says, we believe the Bible is the Word of God and that it has supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. So that's the main point of this morning's message. If you walk away with anything, let it be this. Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. But those words come from the confession. The confession is not our final authority. It may be useful for us, but it is only useful as far as it is aligned with the supreme authority, the Holy Scriptures. You know, we say the same thing about the Apostles' Creed, which we all love and we recite together each week. It's a useful summary of the basic teachings of the Christian faith, but it is not Scripture. So let us go now to the supreme authority in this matter. Open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. I preached on this section a couple of months ago. Uh, we covered verses 10 through 17, so it should be fresh in your minds. Paul wrote this letter from prison as he awaited his execution. He addressed it to his protege, a younger pastor named Timothy. Paul warned Timothy here that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, and that evil people and imposters are going to go on from bad to worse. Not a rosy picture. But, he says to Timothy, but for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. In a sentence, Paul's exhortation to Timothy was this, continue in, abide in the written word. This written word has been breathed out by God himself. That is the context of this morning's passage, but here's where we're headed. We want to look at this passage and answer three questions. First, what is Scripture. If we're to hold Scripture in this position of supreme authority, we need to know what it is. Question two, what are four things that Paul teaches us in this passage about 
Holy Scripture. And question three, what are the implications of sola scriptura for us today? That is, if, if it's true that Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, how should that affect my life? Question one, what are the Scriptures? The term Scripture simply means that which is written. The word is used about 50 times in the New Testament, and in every instance, it refers to the sacred scriptures. It's a technical term, and it's not referring to just any writings. It is referring to sacred or holy writings. The Dutch theologian von Maastricht takes his definition of scripture directly from this passage. He sees that Paul wrote that these sacred writings are profitable and that they're meant to equip the man of God for every good work. And he lumps all that together and calls it living for God. So he defines scripture as the doctrine of living for God insofar as the doctrine, once written down, is preserved in books. We can put it even more simply. Scripture is God's Word written. Three words. Scripture is God's Word written. The English Bible uses more than a dozen terms for Holy Scripture or for portions of Holy Scripture. Here's a sampling so that when you read it, you will recognize it. The Word of God. The Word of Christ. The oracles of God. God's law. God's judgments his precepts, his statutes, his commandments, the law and the prophets, Moses and the prophets, or simply the prophets. In our passage, Paul takes the term scripture and then he adds two qualifiers so that we know exactly what he's talking about. First, he adds the word all. He says all Scripture, that is, the whole of Scripture, not just parts of it. Paul has the entirety of Scripture. The whole counsel of God is what he has in view. And second, Paul uses the word sacred, which is the same word as holy, to qualify these writings. It's not just any writings. He limits it to the writings that are holy, set apart, or sacred. Look back to verse 15. And how from childhood, Timothy, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The word here for writings comes from the same root as the word translated scripture in the next verse. Paul isn't referring merely to writings but to sacred or holy writings. Remember the days when we used leather-bound Bibles instead of apps? So long ago. The words Holy Bible would be imprinted many times on the front cover or on the spine. Holy Bible. Well, this passage is one of the places we find that designation. Sacred being the same word as holy. But why do we call Scripture holy? Four reasons. Scripture is holy because it came from a thrice holy God. That is, it came from a God who is holy, holy, holy. 
and the Holy Spirit directed, or more properly, superintended its writing. All Scripture was breathed out by God, as we see in verse 16. That is, Scripture was not produced by the will of man, but by the will of God. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1. Second, Scripture is called holy because it addresses the holiest of subjects, the nature of God, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Christ, righteousness by faith alone, in the very words of eternal life, these are the holiest of subjects. That's why we call it holy Scripture. Scripture is also called, called holy because it presents to us the holy end or the holy purpose God has in all his works. That is, his glory and the good of his children. That is his holy purpose in all that he does. And lastly, Scripture is called holy because it works holiness in the lives of those who receive it and accept it as the word of God. Listen to what Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And what's the holy result? For you, brothers, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, and that included their suffering. So to our first question, what is Scripture? We answer simply, Scripture is the whole of the holy writings that have been preserved for us. It is God's Word written. Question two, what are the four things Paul teaches us in this passage about the holy Scriptures? Well, first... Holy Scripture comes from or originates from God, verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. I alluded to this a minute ago as one of the reasons Scripture is called holy. It is breathed out by none other than God himself. Not that he bypassed human writers in the process, but Scripture originated from him and he, that is the Holy Spirit, directed the writing of it. When we walked through this passage a couple months ago, we learned about inspiration and about the God-breathed nature of Scripture. We won't cover that ground again, but here we must make the connection between the origin of Scripture and its authority. This is key to understanding sola scriptura. The logic is very straightforward. If Holy Scripture came from God, as it claims in hundreds of passages, then it must be true, for it is impossible for God to lie, Hebrews 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times, Psalm 12. Every word of God proves True, He is a shield to those who take refuge in him, Proverbs 30. But in fact, Scripture is not merely true. 
It is truth itself. Look carefully at the words Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17, 17. He prayed, sanctify them in the truth. That is, Father, make my followers holy in truth. Your word is truth. Jesus didn't say, your word is true. Not that there'd be anything wrong with that. What he said was, the word of God is truth. And that gives a very different sense than merely being true. Let's take this one step further. If Holy Scripture came from God and is therefore true or truth itself, then it must have the authority of God in all that it addresses. And there are a hundred streams that flow from this fountain. The fact that the Scriptures originate from God leads us not only to the truth and authority of Scripture, but also to its clarity and its necessity and its efficacy and its sufficiency. And a 40-minute sermon cannot do any of those topics justice. You can feel the significance of the authority of Scripture when you listen to Wayne Grudem's definition of authority. This is from his systematic theology. The authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. So the first thing we learn about Scripture from this passage is that it came from God. And it is therefore true and it is authoritative, though it is not the only authority, we certainly recognize it as the supreme and final authority. Number two, Holy Scripture is able to make us wise for salvation. If the first thing we learned was that the origin, truth, and authority of the Word of God, then here we have something of the sufficiency of the word of God. Verse 15. And how from childhood, Timothy, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Remember the main point of this message. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The Holy Scripture is sufficient for all that we must believe, and it is sufficient for all that we must obey or do. Verse 15 is where we see the sufficiency of Scripture for all that we must believe. We will come to obedience shortly. The words of the Apostle Peter came to mind as I reflected on the truth that this holy book is sufficient to make us wise for salvation. The disciples heard Jesus say some strange things. That whoever feeds on his flesh and drinks his blood has eternal life. That his flesh was the bread that came down from heaven. And that whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. These were hard things. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? 
And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Oh, that brothers and sisters, we might see and believe this truth as clearly as did the Apostle Peter. That the Lord alone has the words of eternal life. Where else can we turn in this world but to his word? Number three, Holy Scripture is profitable. That is, it is beneficial or it is advantageous. Verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable. The whole of Scripture is breathed out by God and it is advantageous for us in four ways, said Paul. And the big categories include all that we must believe and how we must obey or, or, or behave. Verse 16, all Scripture is profitable. And then here are the four ways. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We will bypass commentary on those four ways because we discussed them quite recently. And I want to move on to the fourth point that Paul gives us about Scripture from this passage. Number four, the, uh, the Holy Scripture equips us or makes us capable for every good work. Verse 17. And this is the purpose that, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Mark the word every. The purpose or the aim of the teaching, reproving, correcting, and training in righteousness is to fit us for some function. It is designed to make us complete or make us capable or able to meet all the demands of something, and that something is every good work. It gains for us, according to von Maastricht, the ability to work, to work what is good, not just this good or that good, but every good, that is every sort of good, natural, moral, and spiritual. So based on that, according to Paul in this passage, is there any good work for which Scripture is not sufficient to equip you? Answer, no. The whole of the holy God-breathed Scripture is advantageous in ways that are specifically designed to fit you for every good work. Scripture is all sufficient, not only for what we must believe, but for how we must behave. It is sufficient for every good work. So let's recap. What are the four things Paul teaches us in this passage about the Holy Scriptures? Well, first, Holy Scripture originates or comes from God. We see that in verse 16. Holy Scripture is able to make us wise for salvation. We see that in verse 15. Holy Scripture is beneficial or profitable. And Paul gives us four ways in verse 16. And then lastly, Holy Scripture fits us or equips us for every good work. And that's from verse 17. So with our definition of Scripture and the four observations from this passage, the basic meaning of sola scriptura should be taking shape. Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, 
certain and infallible rule of all saving knowledge and faith. That is what we must believe. And obedience, that is how we must behave. Well, if that's true, then we're ready to move to question number three. What are the implications of sola scriptura for us today? And how should it affect the way we live? I'm going to offer three rather random implications. And these are, these are my meditations from this past week. They're just examples. In community groups, we're going to ask the same question, and you'll have more time to flesh this out. Implication one. If sola scriptura is true, then holy scripture is necessary. I know that made me sound like Captain Obvious. Holy Scripture, then, is necessary. What I mean is this. Apart from the Word of God, there is no other sufficient, certain, or infallible rule to show me what I must believe and how I must behave. And it's not that God didn't speak to us in other ways. He does. They're just not sufficient. For example, we know that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, Psalm 19. Yes, God reveals himself or something of himself to us in creation. He puts his goodness, his wisdom, and his power on display. Just yesterday, I left early for the office. It was still dark, no clouds, and the moon was little bigger than a than a quarter crescent. I looked up and my eyes adjusted and thousands of stars broke through. As we say, it, it was glorious. That is, God displayed something of his glory to me from the heavens yesterday. And yet that display, that revealing is not sufficient. You see, the ungodly and the righteous for them, God's display of glory in creation does little more than leave the stargazer condemned. That is why I say that Holy Scripture, God's Word written, is necessary. For what can be known about God is plain to the unbelievers because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, Romans 1. You see, nature tells us nothing of what we need to know to save our sinful souls. It says nothing of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, nor does it proclaim the forgiveness of sins or the everlasting life that this risen Jesus secured for those who embrace him in faith. No, for that knowledge, Holy Scripture is necessary. It is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Brothers and sisters, we should cherish this holy book. Without it, we stand condemned in our sin. There is nowhere for us to flee from the wrath of the Almighty. We are without God and without hope 
in this world. What kind of grace is this? That God himself would condescend and breathe out these words that we might know what could never be known from nature, the way of salvation by faith in Christ. That kind of faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, Romans 10. That's implication one. Implication two. If sola scriptura is true, then all other authorities are subject to the supreme authority, God's word. Notice that the doctrine of sola scriptura does not say that there are no other authorities. It just makes it clear that there is one final authority. Parents are authorities. Governor Inslee is an authority, as is President Biden. The church is an authority. But if sola scriptura is true, then all of these lesser authorities must bow their knee to the Holy Scripture. This is the situation in which Peter and the apostles found themselves in Acts chapter 5. They'd been arrested for preaching the gospel against the express commands of the authorities. They were brought before the council, and the high priest questioned them. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Period. That is implication number two. When there's a conflict between the word of God and the word of any authority, be it parents, be it the church or the White House, we must obey God rather than men. Implication three. If sola scriptura is true, and as Christians, we have a certain and infallible rule by which we can test and discern. Think Romans 12, 2. By which we can test and discern the shifting cultural winds of our times. There are so many examples here, and we have time for only one. How do we discern truth when the prevailing worldview would have us believe Something like there are dozens of genders from which a person may choose. I didn't count them, but I understand that Facebook now offers more than 70 gender options for its users. How do we test and discern the truth or falsehood of philosophies like gender fluidity and transgenderism? Does culture dictate or set the standard for what is true? Do we follow the so-called science? Or how about that most cited authority in this matter, the individual? Does the individual have the authority to choose their gender based on how they feel, their own sense of their identity? Well, to those questions, brothers and sisters, the Christian simply asks, what is the supreme authority on these matters? What is the final authority on matters of gender and sexuality? 
Answer, it is not Facebook, nor is it the Vancouver School District, nor is it a psychologist or a psychotherapist or the New York Times. If the Holy Scripture addresses it, the Holy Scripture is the supreme authority over it. And what does the supreme authority say? It says that when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female. Count them, male and female, he created them. And that truth mocked by many today as binary or on the wrong side of history, is then affirmed over and over throughout the pages of Holy Scripture. We would do well, brothers and sisters, to grow very comfortable asking this question, by what authority? We live in times that require Luther-like conviction on the Scriptures, We live in times where Christians need their consciences held captive by the Word of God. Well, there are so many implications of this doctrine. That's just one. There are implications for how we worship, how we treat our wives, how we discipline our children, how we run our company, how we spend our money, how we submit to evil governing authorities that God put in place how we lead a church, and a thousand other implications of this truth. It'll be fun fleshing these out in community group this week. But as we reflect on this doctrine of sola scriptura on Reformation Day and its role in the Protestant Reformation, it is my prayer that you would embrace it, that it would give you clarity in the face of competing authorities And it will prove a rock to stand upon when that wave of cultural conflict threatens to knock you into a sea of confusion. I pray that when those times come, and they will, that God would grant you the grace to say with our brother Martin Luther, unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Let's pray. Father, we we love your word. And Father, I I feel so convicted that, uh, that your word does not have the supreme position in my thinking. Father, I want to rest on your words, the words that you breathed out as the final authority. And Father, I want that for my brothers and sisters. Father, we are, we are being beaten about. We are being told by this expert or that expert, by one authority and the other, what is right, what is true, what we should do. Father, we want to just test and discern those things and see what you say. We want to trust what you say. So, Father, help us to make your word supreme. Father, please take our minds captive by your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.